Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. I think there should both be a cabinet level agency or office and then, you know, an agency underneath that. There's just too much going on right now to expect that all the existing agencies have it covered. They kind of wrote a memo kind of saying that in in between the lines. But the reality is that the existing laws don't anticipate certain things. Like we have laws about protecting private individual speech. But what do you do if somebody makes a billion pieces of harmful misinformation a day? We don't have laws for that, just to give you one example. AI makes things possible in a wholesale way where they could only be possible retail before. It's sort of similar to like a submachine gun versus a knife. You have to think about them differently. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast one of the foremost AI experts in the world. He recently testified the U.S. Senate, also sold an AI company to Uber, has a doctorate from MIT, one of the champions for humanity when it comes to AI, Gary Marcus. Welcome, Gary. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, so you've been on the AI train for a long time. Uh, when, When did you start dipping your toes in? I was kind of born on the AI train. I, I The first time I really thought about AI, <clears throat> I was eight years old, and I went to a kind of gifted and talented after-school program. And my teacher, uh, who I'm still friends with, put a paper computer in front of me, which basically worked the way an assembly language microprocessor would work. Um, very low-level instructions, and taught me how to use it. And that very day was my first media appearance because the local news people filmed me explaining how this thing worked for like a human interest story. I've been thinking about AI pretty much ever since. Like, how do you get computers to do interesting things? When I was a kid, it was like, how do you get them to play games? I was, you know, an only child and always in need of of extra companions and and started fooling around with programming machines to play tic-tac-toe and stuff like that. And then when I was in high school, I programmed uh, a system to translate Latin into English. And um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a high school dropout. And the, the way that I managed to pull that off was I submitted the AI that I had written as a sample of work and went to college early after 10th grade. So I never finished high school, and AI was kind of my ticket off to college. So worked out for me then. So you showed up at college, sounds like the age, six, uh, age 16 or so. Did you race through the rest of your education? I did. I, I did college in three years, partly because I didn't really have money for four, um, and partly because I was just kind of done. And then I did uh, MIT in four, <laughs> got my PhD, and then I was an assistant professor when I was 23 years old. And I remember when I arrived, I was teaching at UMass Amherst, they did a histogram to plot the ages of all the faculty. Most of them were like in their 40s, somewhere in their 50s. They're all kind of higher during the baby boom. And I was this lone dot all the way on the left. I was the, the one 23-year-old. Next closest was like 27 or 28. So I'm not that young anymore, but there was a time when I was pretty young to be a professor. Uh, and you grew up in New England? 
I grew up in Baltimore and then moved to New England for college and grad school and that first faculty job. So I, I spent a lot of time in Baltimore and then a lot of time in Massachusetts and then New York. And then most recently, I moved to Vancouver. All right. So you're the youngest professor around. That must have been a little weird. <laughs> it was pretty weird. I couldn't figure out who to date. It was, it was, it was awkward. So how did, what were your next steps uh, after you were an adjunct professor at UMass? I wasn't an adjunct. I was an assistant professor. I was tenure track. Um, after that, I moved to NYU in 97. Um, and I was an associate professor without tenure. Then I became tenure professor, full professor. I did a kind of whole academic life and then started a company and basically didn't really go back to the academy after that. I did a whole academic life and on things that are very relevant now. So my dissertation was on how children learn language. So part of it was like human psychology, but part of it was looking at neural networks that are very much the predecessor of the stuff that like large language models are built on. And so I started thinking about these questions of like, do you need abstract rules? <clears throat> Can you do everything with neural networks? Where do neural networks make mistakes? As part of my dissertation that I did at MIT, Steve Pinker was my mentor. And then continued on with that stuff, um, not so much working in AI, mostly working on human cognitive psychology. How does the human mind work? How do kids manage to learn language when machines aren't very good at it? Questions like that. And then I returned to AI in 2011 because I made a mistake. I almost never make mistakes in science. I think I'm, my predictions are usually right. So when I get one wrong, I wake up and I'm, I'm predicted that Watson would lose in jeopardy. I thought, well, language is complicated. You know, how are they going to pull this off? And so I was wrong. It turns out there's a trick to how they won, um, but it's also very interesting. I talk about that in my own podcast, um, Humans versus Machines. We, ha we have um, Ken Jennings, who lost to Watson, and David Ferrucci, who built it. But when Ferrucci won and beat Ken Jennings, I was like, hey, maybe AI is getting interesting again. And I've been in the field ever since over the last decade. The, the trick is that 95 or 99% of the answers in uh, Watson turn out to be titles of Wikipedia pages. So it doesn't have to do as much inference and reasoning and stuff like that as you might think. Um, but it was still interesting enough to get me back in the field. And when I returned to the field, neural networks started getting popular again. I was like, I know about that stuff. I wrote a book about them in 2001, which actually um, anticipated the hallucination problem that they have so much right now, where they make stuff up. You know, I thought about all this stuff a long time ago, and suddenly it became very relevant again. Yeah, so how do you go from being this distinguished professor doing a research to starting an AI company? That's an interesting question. I was actually inspired by Demis Hasebis over at DeepMind when, when they sold their company for a ton of money. And they were not primarily a product-focused firm. They were really about developing ideas for AI and, and research ideas. And I thought, I could do that. And I had a friend who was one of the best people in machine learning, um, Zubin Garamani, who I'd gone to grad school and I said, hey, maybe we should start a company too. Like we could gather a bunch of smart people, come up with new ideas. Um, and, you know, if we don't have to like sell widgets and just, you know, if there's space in, in the AI world for just coming up with better algorithms and stuff like that, we can do that. And we did. And you know, we were only in business for two years and, and all kinds of companies came to us and wanted to buy us. And, um, you know, Uber made us what seemed at the time to be a pretty good deal. And we took it. And so it was, I had been writing at that point a lot about AI. I wrote one paper that I think was particularly important in 2012 in The New Yorker, an essay about why deep learning had limits and why, even though there was a lot of excitement, it still had trouble with causal reasoning and abstraction and so forth. And I was like, 
I'm giving my ideas away to the New Yorker for $250 an essay. Um, and that one really foresaw the tension that we have had in the next decade in AI. It was like, I'm doing this, but I could, I could probably do that too. And, and it took me a little while. My wife persuaded me. She said, it's a good idea. You should really do this. You should take the plunge. She came from a family of entrepreneurs. I, I did not come from a family of entrepreneurs. So I was like, all right. And I, I recruited some friends and, and, and it worked out really well. So fast forward to today, you are testifying the U.S. Senate as to the pitfalls around AI. What did you say to them, and what do you think the, that the news accounts are getting right and wrong? Not, not of your testimony, but just generally where AI is concerned. It, it might be worth filling in something there. So, um, you know, I gave you a sort of story of my research career, mentioned that I did some entrepreneurial work. But I really, in the last several months, moved hard into policy. I had thought about policy before. Um, I had actually proposed a CERN for AI in 2017, which is an idea that the UK has been picking up on lately. Um, so I thought about policy before, but I was still kind of more in the academic world. And what I saw really around when Bing and Bard came out in February was a sudden acceleration on the part of the tech companies that felt irresponsible to me. And that's really what shifted me and how I wound up testifying in the Senate. I'd already been writing a lot about the perils of misinformation and saying, like, we need to take seriously, even if these machines aren't very smart, I really think they're not very sophisticated, they can still do a lot of harm. And so I started writing a lot about that. And that was really what led me to the Senate is I started to make the case that we need some regulation. I had a TED talk in April, and I made that about having a global, um, in, an international agency for AI. And so I started really getting concerned <coughs> that we're racing very quickly without really knowing how to control these systems, and that that caused a lot of dangers, both short-term and long-term. Maybe we can get into that. Um, and I think made a clear and articulate case. And that's how I wound up testifying in the Senate. So there's a little bit of background. So, so people ask me sometimes about the potential short-term dangers. And I, I said, well, let's see. You could have uh, uh, an erosion of truth because you have a thousand different versions of reality and deep fake videos and, and audio recordings and what have you. Uh, you could have rampant identity theft uh, because of the fact that my wife can call me and ask me to do something, but it's not my wife. <laughs> or, or, and there, there have been real me. cases of that, right? There, there have been people who, for example, got calls saying their kids were kidnapped and then they wired money, you know, Bitcoin to people who are really scam artists. Um, so this is actually happening with the, the, the um, voice faking stuff. So, so, the, so these are the, some of the negative scenarios that I've described that I find totally plausible um, not even plausible, uh, near certain, because you have these tools, and then guess what? Human nature is what it is, and so you might have people putting out videos and uh, deep fakes for various purposes. Uh, certainly, I mean, the identity theft, I mean, yeah. that's just for commercial gain, where you think, ooh, like that, this is a way I can, I can get some money in a way that, that can't be traced to me effectively. So those are the obvious ones, uh, but there are also some inobvious ones. Yeah, there, there's a lot. So, I mean, first of all, I'll say that the threat to democracy is the one that worries me the most. Like, I just don't see how the 2024 election 
isn't going to be a shit show. There's going to be so much use of these tools. Um, and you're going to see a lot of October surprises, you know, fake stories about this or that candidate having a heart attack or whatever. Um, there's going to be a ton of that. And these new tools make it cheaper to make misinformation. They allow people to make it wholesale rather than retail, like just much larger quantities and very convincing. And We've never confronted that before. So that, that's actually my biggest fear. And that, you know, my shift in policy started with misinformation as my biggest concern, and it remains my biggest concern. But there are others. Like there was a line that I said in my Senate testimony, which is people will use these tools to manipulate our um, elections and our markets. And I didn't have a good example. This was only a few weeks ago in May. I didn't have a good example of the manipulation of markets. And then like a week after I testified, there was this fake um, picture of the Pentagon on fire. And that did actually move the markets. I don't know if it was on purpose. I don't know why people did it. But <clears throat> surely that sent a sign to other people, hey, we could make money shorting the market by putting out misinformation. So we're going to see that. That's another kind of risk. We're going to see lots of romance scams basically automated where people use these tools to you know, do 100,000 romance or billion you know, romance scams at once. So there's just a lot of that kind of cybercrime. Um, and that's just short term. Longer term, I think there are other um, concerns. So I, I don't worry so much about extinction. I didn't sign the famous extinction letter. Like, it's really hard to extinguish the human species. Like, literally get rid of absolutely everybody. Um, but there are a lot of really serious things. Like, you could have accidental nuclear war either caused by misinformation yes. or by market manipulation that leads to people to be suspicious of other people that didn't actually do things, and they get mad, and there's escalation. There's a lot of very serious risks. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, unwarranted military conflict uh, makes my risk list as well. Yeah. Uh, and you've called for um, some kind of international body, uh, which I, I agree with. When I was running for president, I pitched a world data organization that uh, was pitched to me by Ian Bremmer, uh, who just had a TED talk that I know you saw. We, we actually met at TED. Um, I'll let you finish your story, but a quick anecdote about Ian is we met at lunch the day before I gave my TED talk, and he said, what's your TED talk about? And I said, well, 
imagine you're at a 60s protest and you say, what do you want or what do we want? International governance for AI. When do we want it? Now. No, and he yeah. turns to me and says, six months ago. His TED Talk was on a similar uh, topic, as you know. It's so fun to imagine the two of you guys hanging out in Vancouver together. Uh, that, that's, that makes me happy. Uh, you know, we had fun there, and then we met in New York a few weeks ago. So you know, we we've only met a few times, but all all recently, we're starting to um, really click together. I I can see that. Uh, you know, I, I like and admire both of you, um, uh, and uh, humanity is better for having the two of you connected. Thank you. So, uh, so an international body. Um, I I've called for. Uh, something I'm not sure if you included in your Senate testimony, which is uh, an AI-dedicated reg regulatory body here in the U.S. Uh, what do you think about that idea? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think there should both be a cabinet-level agency or office and then, you know, an agency underneath that. There's just too much going on right now to expect that all the existing agencies have it covered. They kind of wrote a memo kind of saying that in, in, in between the lines. But the reality is that the existing laws don't anticipate certain things. Like we have laws about protecting private individual speech. But what do you do if somebody makes a billion pieces of harmful misinformation a day? We don't have laws for that, just to give you one example. AI makes things possible in a wholesale way where they could only be possible retail before. It's sort of similar to like a submachine gun versus a knife. You have to think about them differently. Um, so there are a lot of new both opportunities we want to take advantage of and a lot of risks that, that we need to look out for. I think we need somebody in the White House whose job is full-time, think about this and nothing else. Um, and they need a staff to keep up with all of the different parameters of it. And this is not to like cut out the existing agencies from the loop, but we're going to need some new things. So, for example, <clears throat> I think that we want to have something like FDA approval. If somebody's going to do research, that's one thing. But if they're going to roll out a system to 100,000 people or, sorry, 100 million people, um, you know, we really want to test it, make sure it's safe in the same way we do with a drug. We don't just say, I did, you know, trials on 10 people. Okay, let's put it out to every drugstore on the planet. We say, let's show that, you know, this is right. And we need independent examiners to say, you've made this case, but there are weaknesses in your case. We need to understand this better. You say that there's this risk. You don't have anything about the risk. We also need an agency to push the companies to be transparent. You have Microsoft saying transparency is important to us, and then they use GPT-4, and we don't know what's inside of GPT-4. We don't know what it's trained on, which has a huge influence on things like bias. So we need someone to really hold the company's feet to the fire. So I am 100% for um, having an agency like that, and I've been talking to people in Washington and trying to talk up that idea as much as I can. Yeah, so after you went uh, to the Senate, your testimony was very warmly received what do you see as the prospects for some of your recommendations being followed or, or uh, a coherent regulatory approach? I like the word coherent. That is, that is the, the nub of it. Um, on the one hand, I'm very inspired in certain ways. So the hearings that I was at, hearing, um, was one of the most bipartisan things I think the Senate has done in a long time. And I think everyone I know who kind of follows Washington more closely than I do was amazed at, at how cooperative it was, how much people recognized the urgency, genuinely seemed to want to work together, seemed to um, re recognize that with social media they didn't quite get things right and, and you know want to move quicker and better. So you have that on the positive side of the ledger. 
On the negative side of the ledger, it sort of feels like everybody in Washington has their own ideas about what to do, and they're not necessarily all coordinated and talking to each other. And I wouldn't say there's any one clear answer that has em emerged yet. Um, and so, like, there's a lot of motion, but whether that motion turns out to be coherent, I think, is the question. There's one moment I liked in the Senate proceedings, which was a kind of recognition of their own limitations. I can't remember who, who was that said it, but they said, look, we're not here to legislate like the day-to-day. -day. The way I would repeat it is the Senate shouldn't be there to make rules for GPT-5 as opposed to GPT-4. The Senate should be there to create an enduring agency that can move with the flow and follow all of the details. And I think, you know, some of them realize that. They don't want to be micromanaging the details of AI development. If they get it right, they will build some agency that is nimble enough, fast enough, to be able to deal with things as they move. Yeah, that, 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 the last thing you'd want is the Senate have to check in anytime there's a new development. <laughs> you know, they, they, they don't want that. We don't want them to do that, right? I mean, with due respect, I mean, some of the senators are really following what's going on. Like, I saw Senator Blumenthal on a call after the um, proceedings, and he really understands all of the issues. He's following very closely. But you can't expect 100 senators to all, you know, have their fingers on, on the pulse of AI. They might, like, right now, because they're going to make a first important decision. But, you know, certainly in the long term, they have so many other things to focus on. And so they shouldn't be micromanaging it. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So we're frightening people a little bit. What are some of the positive use cases and applications of AI you see coming down the pike? One of the ones that I cite is, look, I think we're going to have some very powerful new therapeutics, individualized and otherwise, 
uh, to treat some previously untreatable conditions? I think that's right. I, think, I mean, one of the reasons I'm in AI is because I think it has the potential to really advance science and technology. If you think about biology, our bodies have, you know, 100,000 different proteins in them. And any kind of new drug that you make is a matter of kind of three-dimensional chemistry. Molecules have to fit together in exactly the right way. And it's very complicated for any individual human to understand it all. And so in principle, if you had an AI system that could causally understand the world the way a scientist does, but do the computation that a big computer can do, you'd be able to simulate things and figure out stuff that no human has ever been able to do. And in that way, really, I think, fundamentally advanced science. We can't do that with the technology we have now, but I think that there's you know, hope that we will get there. And there's so many diseases where we've made almost no progress, like Alzheimer's, for example. And there's hope that we might eventually be able to make progress there. Yeah, so uh, the, those are some of the things to be excited about. One of the species-level concerns you see out there, you're dubious of, which is that you're going to have a superintelligence that... Uh, gets to a point where it doesn't see a need for us. Some people refer to this as AGI or artificial general intelligence. Uh, I think this is a level above even what you're describing in terms of a machine that's able to reason. Uh, and you're dubious that AGI is any time on the near-term horizon. So I don't think artificial general intelligence, AGI, is imminent, but I think it's possible. The intelligence that we have right now can't really reason, can't stick to facts. It does what we call hallucinations, makes stuff up all the time. Real artificial intelligence, or AGI, is not going to do that stuff. It will actually be able to reason. It will be able to keep track of the world. It won't invent stuff arbitrarily. That might be a decade away. It might be two decades away. I think it will happen this century, but we're not that close to it. Now, even if you had it, we don't necessarily face extinction risk. It doesn't follow like night follows day that if you have a smart machine that we're in jeopardy. None of the machines that we've ever built are particularly interested in human territory, for example. You know, Go has got, the machine Go has gotten much better, but the systems aren't fighting us for territory, things like that. Um, it doesn't go around killing all the Go players. <laughs> it doesn't go around killing all the Go players. It doesn't even know that there are Go players, right? It just knows about this board. It's a real speculation to say that machines are ever going to have any interest in us in that sense. I wouldn't say it's impossible. Jeff Hinton said it's not inconceivable, and I think that's right. But I think what we should really be worried about is what are bad actors going to do with these technologies? You know, we know we have bad humans that want to seize territory, enslave people, or whatever. And so we should be watching out for what people want to do with these machines and not worrying so much about, like, the Skynet scenario. We should have some people thinking about it. I'm not saying we should dismiss it altogether, <coughs> but I don't think it's our immediate worry. Kai-Fu Lee came out with a book uh, a year or so ago, maybe even more now. Actually, it's a few years old now, AI Superpowers, about China and the U.S. competing on AI. Uh, he suggested that China had a couple of structural advantages in terms of access to more data because it's kind of a top-down environment, not a lot of privacy uh, uh, over there. And so they could uh, crunch numbers at higher orders of magnitude, uh, come up with better algorithms, and uh, that was uh, they also had support from the government on a scale that the U.S. Uh, does not. So those were two structural advantages he cited for China, uh, there is some anxiety that if um, one country or another develops uh, 
superiority in AI that this could be worth hundreds of billions of dollars, which you're starting to see. You're starting to see some of the repercussions in the stock market, just for fun, because you've been in the space for a long time. Uh, did you buy NVIDIA stock uh, a little while ago? Because I will say I did not. <laughs> no, I, I did not. I should have. I've been impressed yeah. with Jensen for a long time, and I should have. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you'd have your sense of what the heck is coming, um, more so than just about anyone. Um, but you're seeing something like NVIDIA get hundreds of billions of dollars because now they're regarded as the core chip manufacturer for uh, developing AI. Let me lay a stat on you, and then I'll come back to the Kaifu stuff. Um, Microsoft just put out a stock analysis, I forget what you call it, um, <clears throat> The forecast. They they predicted that uh, GPT four and so forth, large language models, would add about ten billion dollars a year to their revenue, and like that's a lot of money, you know, to me or you, but to them it's not actually that much money. The people making the most money off the AI revolution right now are the chip manufacturers, or really one. It, it's Jensen uh, at Nvidia um, making money off the dream that this stuff is going to affect. The world, but so far, large language models, although they're extremely popular, have not actually led to that much material revenue. People are using them to program computers. There's money in that, but there's not an enormous amount. They're using it for search engine optimization. There's a lot of experimenting, but it's not clear how much money there is in a technology that's fundamentally unreliable. It's interesting. JP Morgan has banned consumer facing use of chatbots. Apple just did the same. Like some of the big companies are waking up to the fact that even though this AI has been really hyped, it, it doesn't necessarily work that well. So how much revenue there actually comes is not clear. And then like, I'll go back to Kai-Fu Lee. Um, Kai-Fu is certainly right that there is a race on to get to AI or artificial general intelligence. I don't think we're actually that close. There's a lot of worry over here that if, if we um, – you know, allow China to get to GPT-5 before us that somehow the world will change in radical ways that I think is silly. You know, GPT-5 will be better than GPT-4. It will write better boilerplate text, but it's not going to invent interstellar travel or, you know, redefine reality in some fundamental way. If China did get to GPT-5 six months before the United States, it's not clear it would have that much consequence. It probably raised their GDP a little, which they could kind of use right now. They're struggling a little bit. Um, but it, it's not going to fundamentally change science. Here's an example I give. GPT-4 sees a lot of games of chess in its database. It sees the rules of chess, and it still does things like have bishops jump over rooks. Like it does not understand chess. If you want to have a system that doesn't understand chess, now design a spaceship for you, good luck. It's not really going to work. Like People are attributing a kind of general intelligence to these systems that they don't really have. So somebody may eventually win the race to AGI, but nobody is close. So it's not the immediate concern that I think a lot of people in both nations think that it is. And, you know, there are now battles over chips and, and export controls and, and stuff like that. I think partly premised on the idea that GPT-5 is going to be this magical thing. It's not really. I wrote this um, essay called What to Expect When You're Expecting GPT-4 around Christmas before GPT-4 came out. And I said, people's minds are going to be blown, but as they dig in, they're going to realize that it's still flawed, that it still hallucinates, that it still doesn't understand the world, etc. And all of these predictions, I had seven predictions, they were all correct. 
And they boil down in some way to saying four will be better, but it's not going to be magic the way that people initially think that it is. Same thing's going to happen with five. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let's return to what you describe as the commercial use cases, the revenue. So a month or two ago, I wrote about how Chegg, the essentially, you could call it textbook and learning tool company, they started out in textbooks, uh, reported that students aren't using them as much. They think because they're using uh, GPT-4, and mm-hmm. they're asking them questions and then they're getting answers. So why would you need to subscribe to Chegg and go through Cliff's Notes and all the, this other stuff? Um, their stock then plummeted. Uh, overnight, I think they lost a billion in stock value uh, that, and before um, getting at least some of it back. And I looked at that and said, wow, you can easily see ChatGPT eating that company's lunch. Um, I get the sense that there's a lot of companies who are going to feel like they have to use it. Um, and it may or may not increase their revenues in that way. Uh, it's a little bit like... Um, like a cost of doing business, I think, uh, or at least mm-hmm. for, that some of these large corporates will adopt. Um, there will be some revenue in in that, but maybe not hundreds of billions, to your point. The hype around it certainly uh, is massive when it comes to these companies getting bid up in the marketplace. And you're suggesting that that's a bit premature. I mean, you know, all of this is speculation. Nobody knows for sure. I will say in, in defense of my personal track record that in 2016, I said everybody's putting money in driverless cars, and I don't think they're going to work anytime soon. I said, look, the fundamental problem with driverless cars is outliers. You have weird circumstances that aren't in your data set. You have systems that don't really understand the world, and so when they get to these weird, weird circumstances, they don't know what to do. So I projected in 2016 that this was going to be rough. And nobody listened to me. And basically $100 billion more was invested in driverless cars since I said that. And it hasn't led to that much. And you're going to have the same kind of question in every domain, which is you got a demo here, but what does it take to make the demo into a product? And the answer is going to be different in every domain because it's going to depend on questions like what is the cost of error? If you make a medical advisor, you know, a single error could be a malpractice suit that takes down your company. If you are recommending computer code and debuggers, I mean, programmers know how to debug, they can just fix an error and and there's not going to be a malpractice suit and it's fine. 
Um, and so each domain is going to be a little bit different in terms of how good is using a system that doesn't really understand what's going on, but can pastiche together a lot of similar text and be maybe like 80% correct. Some places that'll be good enough, and there really will be revenue. In some places it won't, and we'll get stuck in the way that we have with driverless cars where you, know, you need to be 99.9999% accurate, and we just don't have the technology for that yet. Yeah, you have to be able to accept, uh, let's call it an 1% to 5% error rate, which if you're having AI write you a press release really quick that you can edit, then you don't care. It's like, oh, that paragraph screwed up, whatever. Um, but then if it's something that's life or death, then it's unacceptable. That's right. Uh, so what do you see? So you've made a very convincing case for the fact that, look, some of these limitations are baked because it doesn't have true comprehension. Uh, it, it's... Um, recognizing patterns, it's regurgitating things that seem coherent, then sometimes you, when you press on them, may or may not make sense. So what do you see as some domains where this thing is going to, uh, to run? Uh, I guess we've described a couple of them, which are environments where you don't care if it screws up 1% to 5% of the time. <laughs> I still think the best use case is computer programming because not everybody in the world understands how to debug. But everybody who becomes a professional computer programmer does because it's just too much agony if you don't have the right kind of mind to do the troubleshooting and the logic. So by the time you're a professional programmer, you really know how to take your own code, which sometimes has mistakes, and figure out those mistakes. You have the logic of debugging. And so for you to have something that can write the same code you could, make the same mistakes you did, maybe some slightly different ones, but you know how to do that as a professional coder, it's great saves coders a ton of time. It's probably going to drive out some of the outsourced companies. Um, you know, it's a problem when you have people from another country write code for you and you don't quite agree on what you want and so you wind up fixing that stuff. That kind of outsourcing stuff, probably people are going to lose jobs. But programmers can make use of bad code. That's just part of what they do for a living is to take bad code and make it better. That's the debugging process. So that still seems to me like the single best use case. The other really great use case, um, not from a moral sense, is writing basically text for search engine optimization. So one of the biggest uses, of, at least of GPT-3, is a company called Jasper. And a lot of what they do is basically write blog entries, I think, to help people you know, promote their products um, in, in search engine rankings. I don't think this is the most pro-social use of AI. I mean, there was a great line from, I think his name is Jeff Hammerbacher, who was one of the Cloudera founders, um, I think maybe riffing on Alan, Alan Ginsberg, and he said something like, <coughs> I saw the best minds of my generation putting all this effort into selling ads. So like now the best minds are like putting efforts into writing you know, kind of marginal ad copy and stuff like that. Um, I mean, you can do that. It's a very suitable application of this technology. What I would like to see people using AI for is helping in medicine, helping build robots that can take care of the elderly. Um, you know, I've maybe more idealistic. Address, address climate change. Address climate change, exactly. You know, I, I think there are many problems that AI could really help humanity with, but the low-hanging fruit, the easy stuff to do is sell ads and write copy and stuff like that. And that's kind of what, you know, GPT-4 is good at. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. What do you think about having licenses for AI models? I think it's probably a good idea. You, I don't know that we need licenses for everything, but even for research purposes, like in psychology, people have moved towards registering every experiment. And that cleans up the science if we know what's been done. We have what's called a file drawer problem where people try an experiment, it doesn't work, and then they don't write about it. And then you have 10 people try it, it doesn't work, one person tries it, and by some statistical fluke it works, they publish that and then it distorts the literature. So in psychology and some other fields, medicine, people are starting to go with a, to what they call registered experiments, where you say, this is what I'm going to do, this is the methodology and so forth. The science in AI would actually be better off if we did that. And then you get into questions about like liability and so forth. Like if somebody's model gets abused in some way, we'd like to know whose model. We'd like it to be watermarked, registered, so we can go fix it, we can adapt it, and so forth. So there is reason. You might exempt certain things and not big enough to be relevant, something like that. But I think we should move towards that in general. Wow. I guess it's another reason to have this uh, AI agency, um, because it would be um, distributing, monitoring uh, licenses, and then keeping track of who's doing what. Yeah, absolutely. I think that should be part of what an agency does is to license. In some cases, like if there are a lot of risks, make sure that those risks have been well thought through. Um, if it's well-known stuff, it might be a lighter you know, licensing requirement. But if it's something brand new and we don't understand it, then maybe there should be more serious um, you know, analysis before it's, it's widely released. What's funny is when I hear this licensing conversation, um, I probably just think of driver's tests like the rest of it. It's like AI driver's tests. Can this thing... It shouldn't be, you know, <laughs> easier to use an AI system that you deploy to 100 million people than to get a license for a car. I mean, if we're going to make you take a road test for a car, then if you have something you're putting out to 100 million people, let's just, like, make sure it's okay and that nobody's going to die. Like, that's not, that's not a crazy thing to ask. You have the kind of libertarian, you know, the techno-libertarians like Mark Andreessen, who recently blocked me on Twitter, who, like, can't stand the thought of any regulation whatsoever. But, you know, we have regulation for cars and we have regulation for airplanes and medicine, like, with good reason. It's certainly possible to over-regulate. We need to worry about regulatory capture. We don't want the companies making all the rules and keeping everybody out. There's lots of balance to be struck. But the idea that we would have no regulation and no licensing requirement, that's absurd. So you testified the U.S. Senate. You gave a TED Talk. You've written a series of op-eds. What's next for you in terms of uh, trying to put humans back in charge of, of uh, this particular technological era, set of de developments. How can people follow you and support you? Because one thing I really admire about you is that you're looking at this, you know, you're doing it just because you think it's the right thing to do. 
uh, and uh, you're going to keep on finding levers to pull and people to work with, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what's next for you on this path, uh, and how can people support it? I mean, they can read my Substack. I am working towards maybe launching a nonprofit, and I've been talking to some philanthropists about this, um, that would help with AI governance by um, not relying on governments to get everything together and offering an alternative path that maybe I'll talk about sometime soon. I'm not quite ready to divulge all the details, but so I, I'm, I'm thinking about that. People can, of course, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Gary Marcus. The Substack is GaryMarcus.substack.com. And if people see ways to improve the governance of AI, which is really what I'm focused on, they can reach out. I um, Also, my website has a contact form, GaryMarcus.com. Um, and people who have, you know, real skills in developing governance and, and so forth, you know, I, I'd love some help. Do you have a catchy name for the potential nonprofit? We have a name. I don't know if it's catchy enough. So people could also help with that. The, the working title is the Center for Trustworthy AI. Very self-evident. I do like obvious names, uh, but perhaps there is some uh, marketing genius in the audience uh, who will reach out to you on Twitter. And then if... That as well. Their name gets accepted. Uh, they get uh, our eternal gratitude and the gratitude of humanity. <laughs> so that, that's Absolutely. Not... <laughs> and a mention in my Substack. So, Well, who could do better than a mention in Gary's Substack? Uh, congratulations again, man, for taking on this cause. You're a voice of reason, humanity, moderation. When I say moderation, I mean um, like you, you cut to the truth of, of things as opposed to getting caught in the hype one way or another. Uh, I hope that people do take heed to what you're saying. Uh, you know, you're not the least bit overdramatic or sensational about it. Um, and if you're concerned, I think a lot of other people should be too. Some of the pitfalls you describe, uh, including a pretty nasty, cacophonous, disastrous election cycle in 2024, uh, I totally agree with. Well, I really appreciate your support, the chance to, to talk to your audience. Um, and I mean, I think, you know, you and I met for the first time a few weeks ago in New York, and it was clear that, that we have a kind of common view about trying to figure out what's best for humanity and, and um, really taking that seriously and, and not just focusing on our own personal gain. And so I really No doubt, that. Gary. It's going to take people like you and uh, Ian with a dose of me. Uh, and hopefully we can leave, leave this place still in fine shape for humans like our kids. <laughs> that would be awesome. That's the goal. 